Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Carolyn Kane about her really gorgeous and I think really, really fascinating new book, Chromatic Algorithms, Synthetic Color, Computer Art, and Aesthetics After Code. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2014. Now you'll hear about the details and some of the really interesting moments of the book in the interview to come, and I'll, but I'll just contextualize it now by saying this is a book that's going to be of interest whether you are interested in reading a about and working on the history of technology, the history of color, or the history of art and visuality, among many other kinds of fields that the book speaks to. It's a book that really places color centrally as the focus of media studies and uses and conceives media studies as a way to speak back to notions of identity, notions of time and space, um, sort of philosophies of how we think about material and screens. It's just a super fascinating study that I think opens up all kinds of windows into all kinds of fields. So the three parts of the book take us through a broad range of time spanning from 400 BC to very, very recently, but the bulk of the book focuses on the period from the late 1960s through the early 1990s. And what it does is look at a range of different kinds of media materialities, processes, through which color, sort of notions of color and technologies of color transformed and alongside those notions of power transformed, experiences of ourselves transformed, among many other things. If you are interested in histories of film, of painting, um, both digital painting, moving painting, and still painting, websites, um, advertisements, there's just a ton of really fascinating experimental um, and creative work that is explored here. And it offers a series of close readings of those works, some of which are completely hilarious. And I'll link to some of those on the blog site and some of which are really, really moving and some of which do both. So it was really a pleasure to speak with Carolyn about it. And I hope you have a chance um, really, really to take a look at the book and to read your way through it because there's so many powerful images that work really centrally in the book that we can't convey through this medium. So um, get your hands on a copy, take a look, work through it, and I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Thanks very, very much for listening. Here we go. I'm here today to talk with Carolyn Kane about her new book, Chromatic Algorithms. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Carolyn, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I love the book. It's super exciting, and I'm really, really looking forward to talking with you about it. Thank you, Carla. I'm delighted to be here. So, Carolyn, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to work in media studies and on media art in particular? 
Absolutely. So I've always been interested in color and also in uh, electronic media, like television and early video cameras. When I was a kid, I grew up in Toronto, and I always liked both of these two things, but they existed as somewhat separate or distinct interests. So it was not until I started doing a BFA in new media at Ryerson University in Toronto that I gained a very strong foundation in different ways of working with film, 16 millimeter film, 8 millimeter film, analog video, medium format photography, and web design, that I also started to develop a very strong interest in the theory behind these technologies and the media studies. So when I was in grad school at New York University doing my PhD a few years later, I was looking for a research project that had not yet been developed or new ground that had not been charted within the fields of new media studies and new media theory. And I thought to myself, well, what am I interested in? And I thought, well, color. I love color and I love the beautiful electronic hues that I see on screens, whether they're computer or television screens. And so I went to my advisor, Alex Galloway, and I said, what about a project on on electronic color in the development of new media aesthetics. And he said, that's a great idea. And so I just, you know, took off from there. Fantastic. So the book um, that we're going to be talking about today traces the history of digital color from the late 1960s through the early 1990s, looking at the transition from analog to digital and lots of other really, really fascinating transitions. It focuses on the role of electronic color in computer art and media aesthetics after 1960s and in doing after 1960 rather, and in doing so, it really places color, as you just mentioned, at the center of media studies, both to understand the kind of changing relationship um, that we've had to color in a broad historical frame, and um, we'll talk about that especially in the context of chapter one, and also looking at the relationship and the changing relationships between color as it manifests as code and as um, part of a screen interface. Now, the introduction to the book lays the groundwork for the rest of the study by exploring some key methodologies and conceptual foundations, and it really functions as one of two um, introductions in the book. One of the first concepts that you bring up here that's central, um, at least uh, it seems to be, uh, from my perspective as a reader, central to the study is the concept of media archaeology. So can you bring us um, into the book and open this up a bit by introducing this for listeners? What for you um, is media archaeology and what makes it such a vital part of the approach that you're taking here? Absolutely. So media archaeology is is very loosely defined as the archival examination of the materiality of media objects. And it is really posed as something that is a counter or alternative way of studying the history of technology and media objects that is in distinction to dominant narratives that isolate single persons, single great achievements, etc. So media archaeology 
derives from important figures within intellectual history, people like Friedrich Nietzsche or Michel Foucault, whose work on archaeology or genealogy traces a kind of horizontal way of approaching history, looking at things like the variants, the losers, the the errors and the failures, the, the offshoots and the things that have been left out of dominant histories. And then it recuperates these through concrete material approaches to the technologies or what has become obsolete, forgotten media forms, and brings them back into a history of uh, of the new media. And the idea is that it enriches and expands our understanding of say, even the current contemporary technology that we're using by providing a more comprehensive way of contextualizing things like computers and iPhones and social media practices. So I use media archaeology as one of my primary research and analytic methods in chromatic algorithms, as well as visual studies or visual analysis insofar as it has descended and is related to philosophy and phenomenology in particular. Great. Now, another suite of kinds of conceptual foundations and tools and arguments that the introduction raises is a set of conceptual tools that fall loosely under the rubric of the philosophy of technology. So you raise here the work of Heidegger, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. It certainly comes up a little bit later in the book, you raise the idea also of technics. And this brings us, I think, really nicely into one of the things that's happening in the first color or in the first chapter. See, (laughs) already everything is about color in the first color, the first chapter. (laughs) One of the things um, that you mention in chapter one is that color is and always has been a kind of technology. In your words, color of any kind is also always a matter of technics. So because this idea of technics is so important to what's happening here, can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of what does that mean for you? How is color now and has it always been for you a matter of technics? And what do we need to understand about this notion of technics as you're using it here to understand the larger work that this part of the book is doing? Sure. So actually something I'd like to add on to the last question about media archaeology is just simply some of the prominent names in the field, which include people like Friedrich Kittler, Bernard Stiegler, and as you mentioned, Heidegger to some extent can be appropriated within media archaeology. And also media archaeology is in many ways closely associated with philosophy of technology. We could say it's a a certain approach to the philosophy of technology. So the term technics is really, uh, the way that I use it in the book is very much in line with Stiegler's work on technics and time. And the idea is that we don't look at a media object, for example, the computer screen that we sit down in front of every day and just see it as this isolated object that exists on our desk without a history a material history of people who have uh, developed it and you know whatever country that might be the people who have designed it the engineers the labs and the research centers that they were working at in order to create these designs or the algorithms that predict certain patterns of movement on the desktop what is the way in which 
the way things move and are animated might also be connected to these larger cultural histories, social histories, in some sense, a history of engineering. And also, you know, if we go back even further, we can think, well, the computers exist of raw materials. Where did these materials come from? What are the politics that exist within those areas? So that is a, a vast, vast, uh, you know, snapshot of how to think about technics in many different possible circumstances. For me, it was a much narrower focus to just simply thinking about electronic color and the way in which it has played a key role in the development of a new media aesthetic today. So like taking about 40 or 50 years and charting that development of an aesthetic through key experiments by artists or designers who were at times working at research centers or labs, collaborating with engineers or scientists to push color in new directions. So that's really the story that I tell in this book. But of course, Technics covers a much broader terrain. Great. Thank you so much. Now, the first chapter, um, the chapter one, rather, really gives us a very diachronic history of this idea of color as technics, moving from, um, as as part one of the book uh, indicates, 400 BC to 1969. So this is a really, I think, wonderful point of the book in chapter one, where we can see the transformations, but also some of the consistencies in color from very, very early on through Goethe and his notion of sort of romantic color theories as they permeate the arts and sciences all the way through to glow-in-the-dark maiden form underwear. So there's some really great (laughs) images and objects as well in this book I'll just mention for listeners. Now one of, so there are many, many really important points along the way that you chart um, in chapter one that we won't have time to get at and I just want to signal that there is a broader history here in chapter one for listeners who are interested in that. One of though um, the major points of engagement that you take us into in chapter one is the generation of day glow colors. So this is, as you describe it, a kind of archaeology of chemical-based synthetic fluorescent colors that moves us from the 19th century through to the emergence of day glow in post-war America. So can you talk a little bit about that moment, this day glow moment in post-war America, and what for you in the context of your argument is crucial for us to understand about the development of Dayglow in this context. Sure. So Dayglow, just to clarify, is a daylight synthetic fluorescent, which means that it generates fluorescent light in in natural sunlight. It does not need to be in the dark, right? So and the phenomena of fluorescence is, is a fascinating phenomena in and of itself for a number of reasons. So first of all, fluorescing is the only way humans can see ultraviolet rays uh, through a transformative process involving the absorption and conversion of the ultraviolet rays into visible color, it appears to us as fluorescent or fluorescing. And under normal lighting conditions, fluorescent colors appear brighter than other colors, as, as people are probably already aware. But under black lights, they and exposure to sunlight, which also naturally contains ultraviolet rays, they pop and sizzle even more intensely. So there are these very um, intense, fascinating hues that are really unlike other colors in the spectrum. 
And also, because fluorescent colors can both reflect and emit light, they're somewhat of a threshold phenomenon, right? They exist between additive and subtractive color systems. So an additive color system is like a light source, like the computer screen. Oh, the computer screen actually reflects light also. But um, if you turn on a light in your house, that is a, a generative source of light. And a subtractive color system is pigment, like in a painting or a page of a magazine. But fluorescent colors exist in between both because they can do both simultaneously. And they also behave according to their own laws. They don't use the same laws of color theory that normal, say, red, green, and blue colors will apply. So this very bizarre and unstable behavior of fluorescence has contributed to what is really a very long history of their development, their identification as a natural phenomena, and eventually their development as a synthetic color, which is the history that I trace in the chapter. And they're often associated with mysticism or magic because of this strange, interesting quality that at various points in history was um, unknown and uncertain to many people who were engaging it. So the story that I chart in the chapter around Dayglow involves a story that moves between Europe and the United States for the most part, uh, beginning with precursors in the development of synthetic chemistry um, and dyes in the 19th and early 20th centuries in Europe, and the development really, which is the, the beginnings of the synthetic color chemi- chemistry. Um, dyes used for clothing and mass manufacturing of items, and then moving into the story of the Switzer brothers of California and Ohio, who founded the Dayglow Corporation in 1968. But their work trying to develop Dayglow really begins much earlier in the 30s. Um, so would you like me to go into some of the early stories around the development of the synthetic colors in the 19th century? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe we can leave that for the book for now um, and just kind of signal that there are some really interesting stories there for listeners to go to because there are so many fascinating stories, Carolyn, that I worry that if we spend too much time on those stories, we won't get to like super groovy Milquarious and stuff by the end of the book. So maybe... Okay. Um, But maybe are there, um, if there are particular favorite stories that you have that you'd just like to signal for listeners, um, that would be great. Um, Sure. Well, maybe I will just cut to the chase with the end of the Dayglow story um, to the way in which I use it at the end of chapter one to set a stage, really, uh, for the beginning of the chapters that follow, which focus on electronic color. So Dayglow, as I mentioned before, is a chemical-based color, and it really became a part of mainstream consumerism and American culture in the post-war years um, from 19, early 1950s through the 1960s, where you find uh, you know designers designing clothes in Dayglow, Braniff Airlines in 1965 uh, commissioned fashion designer Emilio Pucci to design uh, these extremely colorful 
uh, outfits for the stewardesses to wear on the airlines. And we have fashion designers like Betsy Johnson designing and Dayglow, which she continues to do today, but beginning as well as the way in which Dayglow coincides with the counterculture and the and LSD was a part of this culture, which was actually unregulated in California until 
uh, Eric Siegel, um, who developed these uh, very, very fascinating experimental synthesizers. So all of the groovy colors and um, oscillating waveforms that people might associate from the late 60s was being engineered and developed and really built from the ground up at these experimental television centers and research labs like WGBH or WNNAT in uh, New York, or I think it's K something in California. And part of the reason why this is happening is because the technology was so new that in order for artists to gain access to it and to use it, they had to apply for residencies at these labs and these research centers. So they would come in and they would have support and they would collaborate with directors and engineers and they would make these wild, interesting experiments and again, push the technology in new directions. Great. Now, one of the, um, so this chapter takes us into really close readings in really, really fascinating ways of a lot of individual and collective projects that were produced by um, some of the people that you mentioned, including something called the Scanimate, um, which I love because you mentioned a sort of use uh, or a related product coming out of the development of Scanimate technology relatively recently called the Rock Opera Battle for Milquarius. Now, I have to put a link to the Battle of Milquarius um, on the uh, blog post for this interview because, or Battle for Milquarius because it is fascinating. Um, so this is one example of many of um, kinds of technologies that you describe in this chapter producing what you call super smooth liquid rainbow effects for TV and film industries. So one of the concepts that comes up in your discussion of this is the notion of the connection between color and utopia in these works because it seems like a really important part of the argument that you're making here can you speak to that in what ways for you um, do we need to understand these works in terms of utopia and perhaps a step further in terms of transcendence Sure. So this goes back to some of the idea of thinking about technology historically, because if we think about this moment in 1968-69 when these new colors were bursting on the screen and we have people like Gene Youngblood who uh, infamously wrote television will help us become more human, it will lead us closer to ourselves, or collective of artists also in the early 70s uh, claiming high technology as an adjunct to personal and spiritual growth. Uh, the chapter is also subtitled Electric now indigo blue which indicates uh, Ron Hayes who is quoted as seeing the new medium of television as being very much connected to a spiritual attitude and having the capacity to bring humans in connection with these new media into a new you know cosmological beyond so this is very much a kind of utopian thinking that is saturating the times and so I, I I thought well why is this happening and where does it come from and 
if we think about color and the history of color, it turns out that in the history of new color technologies, almost every time there's a new a new color that's introduced, these kind of utopian visionary associations are accrued to it. So, for example, if we think about the introduction of um, uh, oil paints that could be taken outdoors for painters in the 19th century, right? This is the beginning of, of the mass production of oil tubes, tube paints. Uh, it was very much part of what turned and gave some inspiration to certain romantic artists and painters who, in, in the spirit of Goethe, sought then to take these colors and to create imagery that returned viewers and the experience of art into a, a pre-linguistic a kind of utopia, an, an Edenic space of vision, right? This is the moment when in 1857, the art critic John Ruskin coins the term the innocent eye of painting, right, which is meant to denote the way artists could experience and paint the world within this kind of innocence and purity of a child's vision. So I, I use this as an example to then point back to what's happening in the late 60s and early 70s around color and to show, well, some of the hype needs to be put into context and understood that this is this is what happens, right? And then as color technologies become increasingly standardized, commercialized, mass reproduced, a lot of the visionary experimental energy fades away. It no longer becomes possible because the color's no longer new. <coughs> so what you this example that you were citing from the Hollywood studio um, in conjunction with the ad agency from 2009 who produced the uh, battle for Michelarius excuse me one second mm-hmm. is an interesting example because <clears throat> In this upcoming Got Milk production, which is a rock opera about milk, they wanted to simulate the look of the Scanimate from 1969. <coughs> and the Scanimate is one of the last uh, hybrid analog digital synthesizers that produced these very liquid, loose colors for television. It was used in uh, this the Sesame Street spaghetti letters sequence, but it was uh, it marks really the end of an era of a certain kind of psychedelic graphics because after uh, the Scanimate very quickly became phased out by newer digital editing systems in the 1980s. The rise of personal computing, digital effects technologies, and digital software. So it really it became obsolete in a sense. I think there's maybe six Scanimate systems that exist in the world now, and uh, and there are these huge bulky devices. Of course, when we talk about synthesizers from the '60s, we're talking about you know two or three refrigerators. Right. So 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 at any rate, but they do have this this looseness, also a kind of dirtiness because. Um, the resolution was not as clean and tight as the newer digital systems. So the analog, it, it's also dirtier because of the way it takes in information. It doesn't sort it out as narrowly as certain um, digital systems would do. And of course, this is um, 
this is true in, in convention and practice, but in theory, it, you know, provided we have the right funding and access to technology, you can move either of those claims in, in both directions, right? You can have dirty digital or very clean digital. It depends on the quality of the wires, the connections, et cetera. So this is just a general um, observation about convention, the way things tend to be used. Um, and so in this um Vortex scene from the 2009 um, rock opera about milk, they wanted to simulate the Scandamate from 1969 because they like, you know, for whatever reason, nostalgia or whatever, they really liked the look of it. And so they located one of the original Scandamates, but it was, it would have been so time consuming and laborious to actually generate their animations using the system. They decided instead to take a uh, high-definition digital camera, like a 4K resolution camera, to shoot animations that were coming off of the surface of the screen of the Scanimate. And so the look that they have, which they're, they're quite content with, really, it resembles the original Scanimate animations, but there's also a kind of flatness and a thinness to them. Uh, and it also relates to this kind of homogenizing of color and of digital color palettes, which it, it really connects to a much broader discussion about compression and the fact that in computing, the more information we can get to travel in the quickest amount of time and the most efficiently is better. So therefore, we cut out a lot of what is deemed by certain algorithms or engineers to be superfluous, unnecessary information. So there's only very narrow bands of red, green, or pink that are coming through in much digital imaging. And so this creates a kind of um, flat uh, look or homogenizing aesthetic to them. There's also the way that colors are light is actually flattened within many of the LCD screens. So this is in contrast to analog CRT television sets or screens and CRT is cathode ray tube. So that was those old television sets that are very big and bulky because they had these vacuum tubes that would shoot phosphors around that were much less precise and they often blurred at their trace points, which is what lends itself to this kind of dirty, this characteristic I'm calling dirty in analog uh, imaging. In contrast to many of the LCD screens that we use today with our computers or our iPhones, which are liquid crystal displays, and the liquid crystals within them are sandwiched together between these two layers of polarized glass, so we can generate a more precise arrangement of the colors and the and the light pixels to ensure that it's more efficient, basically, so that if voltage and energy is applied, light will not travel through into areas where we did not intend for it to go. Great. So after, thank you so much, Carolyn. So after this first part of the book, Chromatic Visions, that moves us again from 400 BC to 1969, we move into the second part of the book. This is Disciplining Color, Encounters with Number and Code, 1965 to 1984. Now this part of the book looks at key creative and experimental uses of color in the 60s and in the 70s, and they highlight how scientists and programmers and artists mostly 
Americans, but not only Americans, developed new techniques for using color in computer art. So after a chapter, and I won't ask you to talk about this um, too much purely in the interest of time, but I'll just signal it for listeners, after a chapter that compares the analysis of color in early computer art in European, mostly German and some Dutch and U.S. contexts, right? And this contrast, um, among many other things, is between a kind of German approach that maintains a very rational, as you put it, attitude toward color versus a U.S. approach that tends toward the kind of utopian, as we were talking about just a bit earlier, mystical and what you call spiritual uses of color, but also links it to um, the sort of consideration of the reconfiguration of military weapons to generate some of this technology. So there's a whole chapter that does that. After that, we move to a chapter that looks closely at color and early computer art in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. This is a super fascinating chapter, and I'm going to ask you um, just a little bit about it. So one of the concepts that emerges in this chapter, chapter four, that seems very important for the work that's done here is your notion of democratic color. So can you take us into what's happening in this chapter, or at least um, begin our, our voyage here by introducing this notion of democratic color? What for you is democratic color? What's important about this notion? And how does this shape your argument or your analysis in this part of the book? Sure. So by democratic color, I really am referring to some of the ideas I just spoke about with the homogenization of the treatment of the differences between hues and movement uh, within digital imaging. So because there's a high level of compression within digital media, things tend to get flattened out. And so by democratic color, I refer to this kind of color that is increasingly available to more and more consumers and users, but has very little difference or distinction, say, between certain interfaces, color palettes, ways of moving or of using these different colors. And the reason that I come to make this claim or this conclusion, really, because ultimately it comes at the end of chapter four, is because the majority of that chapter traces the history of experiments with color systems and early digital art, in this case, focusing exclusively at the work uh, that was done in the late 60s and early 70s at Bell Telephone Laboratories. And in particular, I also focus on the work of Lillian Schwartz, who came into the labs for many years and collaborated with some of the lab's scientists and engineers to make these incredible and very understudied and under-recognized works of early computer art. And her colors in particular were why was why she was really a key uh, case study for this project. So there are all kinds of stories about Lillian Schwartz in this chapter, and I won't ask you to talk about the urinated pen, but I want to mention the urinated pen. Listeners, take note, there is a urinated pen in this chapter, um, and it has to do with the story about Lillian Schwartz meeting Salvador Dali and all kinds of fun um, details that come out of that. So you'll have to just get your hands on a copy of the book and read this chapter, hint, hint, tantalizing, um, you know, dangling this in front of you, listeners. 
years to figure out what's going on with the urinated pen. Um, but one of the other really fascinating moments for me in this book was mentioned kind of almost as an aside. Now, as you're introducing this work, Proxima Centauri, in 1968, which itself seems really beautiful and fascinating, you mention reassembling it during the course of your archival research. Now, this is a moment for any of us who are interested in craft, in the material process of research that's really, um, that is, is really noteworthy and um, seems really, really important. So can you take us into um, maybe what you find so fascinating and important about Lillian Schwartz's work by telling us a little bit about this reassembly process um, of your own? Um, was this something, uh, was this a methodology that you used often in the course of your research? Um, anything kind of relating to those sorts of issues? Lillian Schwartz, reassembling, and your own archival process. Sure. So I visited the Lillian Feldman Schwartz archives, which uh, at, were at the Ohio State University Libraries. And I visited twice, and I was one of the first researchers there to go through a lot of this material, which for the most part had not even been looked at or cataloged, was in the process of being cataloged and the the times that I was there. And one uh, one piece was this Proxima Centauri piece from 1968, which she had entered in the Museum of Modern Arts. Um, the machine is seen at the end of the mechanical age. There's a very important uh, exhibition there. And this uh, when I was there, they, they uh, Lisa Yakovellis had given me the opportunity to reassemble this um, sculpture, which was maybe a five-foot uh, rectangular box standing off the floor, and this glossy white dome on top. And it it, uh, it reacted to your proximity to it. So as you approached it, it turned red, and as you walked away, it turned blue or it sunk down into its face. So this might sound like nothing special because all of these kinds of works exist in galleries today, but in 1968, it was very sophisticated and very elegant because it hid all of its mechanics behind its clean plastic dome or within the black box. And she had collaborated with an engineer also to make this piece. And the other thing that is interesting about it is that when it was entered into the MoMA show, at the opening of this show, she this is also where she encountered Leon Harmon and some of the other engineers from Bell Labs who had been displaying their work, which was these black and white computer-generated images, some of the very first computer-generated images framed within the context of art. And it was a very different style, right? It was um, rigid, geometric, only printed on paper. But uh, they, the two different parties were very intrigued by the work that they saw from each other. And Leon Harmon that night had invited Lillian to visit Bell Labs and see what they were doing with their new computer technology. And that is where a whole history of um, Lillian Schwartz and the work she produced at Bell Labs begins. And part of the reason why I find her work so fascinating is because, as I mentioned, she was very innovative and creative, trained in part as an artist. 
and brought new ideas to scientists and engineers who were trained to think in a very different way. So the kinds of things that came out of these encounters and elaborate collaborations are extremely fascinating, and that is that is what the majority of the chapter charts. Um, I should say that um, I'm not sure if the archives are still open to the public, and uh, there's some complications around uh, her work and the work that she made at Bell Labs now. So my advice or my suggestion to scholars or students who are interested in finding an archive is just as soon as you find something that looks interesting, go there. <laughs> take, take advantage of it uh, while you can. And talk to, I talked with Lillian. She's very generous and, and kind and, you know, just go for it while uh, while the things are on the table. Thank you. And um, for listeners as well who are particularly fascinated, as I absolutely am, um, in the space of Bell Labs as this locus for generating and promoting computer art and this uh, merging of engineering and the arts, there's a lot of discussion here in this chapter and Chapter 4 of other works as well. Um, and there's it's this chapter is an archive itself of some really fascinating work being done at Bell Labs. And it seems like there's a whole uh, you know, bookshelf worth of stuff you could write about this if you know if this chapter is any indication of the richness um, of those practices and real fascination from the perspective of the arts and the sciences so there's another chapter that concludes this part of the book that I'll also just kind of mention and gesture at just in the interest of moving forward into this the third part but I want to um, signal this because there's some really really interesting examples in chapter five of work coming out of an aesthetic that you call um, dirt style aesthetic or dirty new media. So what chapter five does is it looks at color technologies that you set in your words marked the advent of a new spatial aesthetic in electronic imaging. And so the technologies um, that you take us through here include chroma key, um, which is related to the like sort of blue screen technology in film. Um, you take us into sort of the ways that the dirt aesthetic kind of critiques the 2.0 look. You take us into the work of Paper Rad, and I'll sort of put some links to that work as it's available on the web um, in the blog post here. And you take us into the development of the Alpha Channel. So this is really, really fascinating aesthetic things happening in that chapter. But we have to get to part three. Um, <laughs> we absolutely have to. So part three um, is called Transparent Screens, transparent in quotes, for opaque ontology. And this part Part of the book spans from 1984 to 2007. There's some amazing work um, chronicled in this part of the book and also some really fascinating arguments that are absolutely central to this algorithmic turn that the book is charting. So I want to make sure that we have time to talk about this. Now, the shift to automated color is a really important turning point in the book. In the late 1990s, as you describe here, digital color becomes less about the capacity to transcend technology, so linking up to this uh, discourse of transcendence that we've been talking about, to express inner vision or alternate reality, this utopic vision. And instead, it becomes an issue of style and media critique. 
In chapter six, digital color is reframed here as cold algorithmic color. So let's talk about this coldness and this algorithmicness. First off, um, the algorithm is really central here. So let's start there. Um, what for, um, for the purpose of the work done by this chapter, can you talk about the centrality of the algorithm? What is it and what's, um, what do we need to understand about the kind of work that algorithmic um, conceptions are doing here to understand the larger arguments in this chapter of the book? Absolutely. So an algorithm is a formula for a set of steps that must necessarily be be undertaken in order to execute a certain operation. So they're predetermined, they're formulaic, generally mathematical, when we're talking about computer algorithms. And they are increasingly playing a predominant role in computer culture, of course, but also in the way we interact with social media the way that when we go to our Amazon homepage and there's suggestions of what we might like to buy, it's because the computer is gathering data from our previous patterns and uses and using algorithms to then predict what we similar things uh, with a bit of a difference that we might also like to purchase. So this is the way that the algorithm is really occupying a central role within our culture, consumer culture, aesthetic culture, and, um, and visual culture. And so in this chapter on the algorithm rhythmic life world, I use infrared as a way to chart this shift from what was let's say habitually or conventionally a a visual or optic model of producing images and vision to a newer model where algorithms are being used to generate the visual fields. And it's tricky because in a sense, of course, we live in a visual culture and we're inundated by images. So it's not to say that optics or vision are on the wane, but simply the way in which we understand how the visual field is operating and the way in which is produced is what has changed on a material and a technical level. It is not so much about using chemical photography or film to capture light from the world and then chemically transform it or to look and draw, but rather to use computational sensors to capture data that then transforms it into mathematics, which generates a whole set of um, a simulated visual space, a simulated image space. So so to give an example, I I begin with uh, this example from Hitchcock's Rear Window, which was 1954. And in the opening scene, we see L.B. Jeffries, who's played by James Stewart, sitting in his apartment window, and he's looking out his rear window. And he's, of course, confined to his apartment and unable to walk because his leg is in a cast. So he sits there in his window gazing at his neighbors and using his camera lens, which becomes symbolically a kind of prosthetic eye, and interpreting these minute visual cues that he sees, which leads him to believe he has witnessed a murder. And so this is what ultimately propels the narrative of the film forward. Thank you. 
things. So then I say, well, what would it mean if this scenario had unfolded with Jeffries being equipped with an infrared camera, which was capable of tracking bodies through walls and curtains? And this is an interesting question because it forces this comparison between these two radically distinct modes of perception, right? The optical, the traditional photographic, optical, visual, and the algorithmic, which is the way, because infrared becomes a perfect example of the algorithmic because we can't see infrared naturally, right? It's only, it's heat information, which is transformed in a computer technology to produce a visual image. So ultimately, any digital image could be used to illustrate the algorithmic production of the visual field, but infrared becomes an especially uh, good example of doing that. Great. And one of the really interesting things that comes out of this analysis, and, and I think a really central point that you're making here, at least from my perspective, is that color, and, and this comes out of these examples, is not only about vision, as you put it. In your words, it's a system of control used to manage and discipline perception and thus reality. And the chapter, in I think a really useful um, and really cogent and clear way, looks at and sort of maps this out by comparing for example, a kind of Foucauldian disciplinary society to a Deleuzean society of control, a move from, in how we understand privacy, from surveillance to capture. And it shows the centrality of color um, really in a fascinating way. We usually, or at least I don't usually think about color, right, when I think about these issues of power. It shows the centrality of color to this. And so this plays out, I think, really centrally in the example of infrared. You talk about the ways that infrared um, is really bound to the history of the military-industrial complex. And then talk about the emergence in this context of something that you call algorithmic exhibitionism. So briefly, what's the importance of algorithmic exhibitionism um, to this argument? Sure. So the concept is really couched within a, a series of steps that lead up to up to that term or that phrase. But very briefly, I was considering how these new ways of capturing and producing the visual fields by algorithms, which is to say a new way of um, controlling bodies and identities and subjectivities, no longer through the use of vision and optics so much, which is what is characteristic of of Foucault's disciplinary society, but instead the use of numbers, codes, and passwords as a way of controlling people and spaces, which is, of course, indicative of the control society, as you mentioned, and emerges from post-war cybernetics and the advent of information systems. So how does this affect, uh, what does subjectivity look like and identity look like under this this regime, right, this algorithmic production of vision and of the self. And so this idea of exhibitionism is meant to touch on the way in which showing, right, showing oneself or logging in, signing in, um, making one's mark or having a profile within a certain, showing one's part of oneself within a certain space is actually a form of existing in and of itself in in contemporary society. So it's not, it's much lesser about, say, um, James Stewart or, or Jeffries, but the voyeurism, right, the voyeurism of looking uh, the subject who is hidden, but instead 
a kind of showing of oneself in order to be. And again, it, it may sound a little abstract, but the, the argument is, is charted out in more detail within that chapter. And of course, the way in which that also connects to a gendered reading of that shift. Right. Thank you so much. So in this turn from optics, um, this actually takes us, I think, really nicely to chapter seven on what you call the Photoshop cinema. Now you raise in this chapter the notion of post-optics. And in exploring this, you take us into some absolutely gorgeous and I think transformative work by American artist, Jeremy Blake. You use this to talk about the aesthetics of what you call, again, as I mentioned in the chapter title, Photoshop. Photoshop cinema. So can you um, take us into this notion of Photoshop cinema as it shapes the argument here um, by maybe talking a little bit about the work of Jeremy Blake and how this kind of encapsulates this uh, Photoshop cinema for you? Okay, so the Photoshop cinema, as you say, is the last full chapter in Chromatic Algorithms. And Jeremy Blake's digital artwork is analyzed in in a lot of detail. It's it's true, it's very beautiful, bold, saturated color artwork, which I loosely position alongside certain feature films like Pleasantville from 2000, Sin City, A Scanner Darkly, and A Speed Racer, all of which are from the early 2000s. And Blake's work too, by the way, he made 19 um, digital time-based digital paintings uh, between 1997 and 2007. So a very, he's a very contemporary artist, in other words. Um, and these films, as well as Blake's work, is really characterized by a highly stylized use of digital color, comprising what I'm calling the Photoshop cinema. So much of this work, the, we see these multicolored, deeply saturated hues just streaked across the screen, or these chromatic abstractions that appear out of nowhere. So for example, he did some of the color sequences in Punch Drunk Love or the opening scene to Dancer in the Dark, where you see these opaque colors just on the surface of the screen and they're opaque. And so the question becomes, why are they here? What are they doing? Are they enhancing visual experience or are they somehow detracting from it? And so this is where I use the concept of the Photoshop cinema, Photoshop, which is, of course, associated with painting or right? a painting style that's been brought into digital media. And I argue that there's this emergence of, of the Photoshop style within time-based moving images, within a new kind of media aesthetic within the beginning of the 21st century. And I argue that this saturated digital color aesthetic figures as both a stylistic and conceptual opacity within the aesthetic. So by stylistic opacity, I mean the literal use of these thick colors, right? Generated through Photoshop or similar software applications like After Effects, perhaps for time-based imagery. And by conceptual opacity, I mean the impenetrability on the level of meaning and interpretation. So this results in a kind of cool and aloof indifference to 
the work, uh, which coincides with also a return to automation and standardization that these when these artists are using digital color in Photoshop or other predetermined template softwares, very much unlike the experimental artists of the late 60s, uh, they have much narrower choices and decisions that can be made within them. So I think this is in part where some of the coolness comes from. It's easy to use. There's a kind of indifference to it. It was not um, building these tools and systems from the ground up like many of the pioneers once did, but instead these brighter, more saturated colors that are, you know, possible with the click of a button. Great. So there's, after this full body chapter, there's a postscript that takes us into the conclusion of the book and beyond, right? This is a postscript called A New Dark Age. And since we're coming to the conclusion of the interview, I won't ask you too much about this, but one of the really notable, at least for me as someone trained in the history of science, right, in the history of biology in particular, one of the really notable moments um, or um, conceits in this chapter, rather, in this postscript, is a focus on bio art on transgenic art, on bioluminescence. So can you maybe just um, give us a little hint of this postscript by talking a little bit about bio art? What's the, what's the work that bio art is doing here for you? Sure. So by bio art, we're thinking of people like Eduardo Kack, who is really combining art and science by taking current research in science. So in his case, it's the uh, genetic engineering or the use of the fluorescent, uh, the green fluorescent protein, which has been synthetically developed. Uh, It exists naturally in um, certain strains of jellyfish or in coral. We have pink fluorescence in coral, green fluorescence in jellyfish. And science has found a way to isolate them and synthetically reproduce them. And then they can um, inject, in the case of Eduardo Kack, he took a situation where they were injecting the green fluorescent protein into the embryo of a rabbit. And then the offspring would actually glow fluorescent green when placed under blacklight. So this is really kind of strange, freakish but also cute because it's a bunny uh, situation. And part of what he's doing in his work is calling attention to practices within science and engineering and certain labs, as well as using colors in a wholly different way than uh, we are accustomed to in traditional plastic arts. Great. So, Carolyn, we're at the end of our time. There's a million, billion, billion things that we could have talked about in the book. It's an extraordinarily rich study, and we really only scratched the surface. Given that, um, still, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Sure. So um, I'm currently um, doing a postdoc, a one-year postdoc here at Brown University in Pembroke, which is the study for research and teaching on women. And so I might like to just put a little um, marker in for the way in which color also connects to uh, the feminine, to issues in gender and race studies. And so, and this is outlined also in the first chapter, where I position color within a much longer history of Western culture uh, in contrast to white light, where what pure white light has been associated with the Enlightenment, 
scientific idealism, Christianity, a Christian God, or a transcendental masculine spirit, in contrast to color, which is the other, you know, the degraded counterpart, the secondary. Uh, so in a way, if we think about this research on color, there's many ways in that it can connect into gender and the control of color within the reproduction of images. Colors are often meant to be clean and safe and only supportive of narrative, form, shape, and line. These are all gendered and also ideological and political terms. So for those people who are interested in updating feminism or doing new work in race studies, connecting some of this to color technology and the way in which color technologies are used is really a fascinating area that has been completely untapped in scholarship. That's completely awesome. Thank you for mentioning that. And that's um, ending on, I think, a really exciting note. But um, now that, speaking of ending on an exciting note, now that this book is out, and again, congratulations on an amazing and really, really beautiful book as well, and very, very thought-provoking and conceptually um, rich book, what's next for you? What kind of project or projects are currently inspiring you, and what are you working on now? Sure. So while I'm here on this postdoc, I, I'm also doing work and research for uh, my next book, which is very tentatively about um, decompression aesthetics and glitch art. And so this project inquires into you know, asking, what does it say about our contemporary historical moment that so much visual art, media, and design do not mobilize the classical principles of visual communication or empiricism, but instead this kind of multivalent dissonance in the form of polytonal noise, chromatic glitches, and digital artifacts, right? What does it say about our contemporary moment that this is becoming an increasingly popular style and the whole genre of glitch art uh, really speaks to this? And so, of course, these techniques and error and failure are well-established techniques in the avant-garde, so that becomes part of the historical backdrop for the project. But I'm really more curious in asking, well, what does it say that this is happening now? And how does this connect to broader issues of cultural, political, and economic failure in the 21st century? Well, best of luck with that project, which also sounds completely fabulous, Carolyn. And thank you so much for making time to talk with me. It's really been a pleasure. And best of luck with your new work. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.